Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. So today we're going to get stuck into the book of Mark again, um, and we're going to be reading chapter 11. Um, and as we read this chapter together, there's a couple of questions that I want you to think about as we go through it. And so the first one is, who is Jesus to me? And is Jesus the leader or authority figure in my life? Is he on the throne of my life? And I hope that by the end of this talk, I'll at least go some way to convincing you that Jesus is the Son of God, come to rescue us from the consequences of our wrongdoings, and that he's really worthy of being put on the throne of our lives. So Laurie's going to come up and read the passage for us. Um, Mark chapter 11 from verses 1 to 11 and from verses 27 to 33 from the New Living Translation. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied that, that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it and he sat on it. Many of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the centre of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in the highest heaven! So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left before at looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. Again they entered Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptise come from heaven or was it merely human? Answer me. They talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. But, we, if, but do we dare say it was merely human? For they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Thanks, Laurie. Okay, so before we start looking into this chapter, I'm going to take us on a little bit of a journey back at what's happened so far. Because I think so much of this passage is about Jesus' authority. 
And usually, when we determine if someone can be in a position of leadership or authority, we check their CV or we check their track record. Um, I haven't had to write a CV for a very long time, but my memory of it is a bit like listing all your achievements in the skills in, and skills in the hope that someone's going to pick you or decide that you're the right person for the job. Sometimes it might be a yes. Sometimes we might have experienced the pain of a no, um, but I'm certain that if Jesus gave me his CV, it would have all the correct qualifications. The biggest one obviously being that he's the son of God, member of the Trinity. And we've seen loads so far in the book of Mark, haven't we, that we could list on Jesus's CV. So I'm just gonna take us on a little look at that. Um, so, you keep going, Okay, it's frozen, but it's fine, I'll go through it. So, number one, miraculous conception, born of the Holy Spirit. Thanks, James. Number two, baptised by John, with God the Father in attendance, who declares over him, this is my son, with whom I'm well pleased. He set people free from demonic or evil spirits. He forgave sins of many. He healed many, blind, paralysed, uncontrolled bleeding. He walked on water. I can't even imagine what that looks like. Um, he fed thousands with a few fish and a few loaves. He was an excellent teacher, teaching in parables and stories to help people understand. Um, and he lived a life of service for others. I don't know about you, pretty good CV isn't it um, so when we get to Mark chapter 11 we need to look at it in the light of what has already happened and I hope this convinces you at this point Mark chapter 11 that we've got someone very important in front of us so if we go back to chapter 11 which Laurie just read for us so so far Jesus has spent most of his time traveling around Galilee doing loads of great works and he's now headed into Jerusalem and Jerusalem is really important because this is where the temple is. Um, and people at this time are coming back into Jerusalem because it's time to celebrate. It's time to celebrate something called Passover. And you might remember from the Old Testament, the bit of the Bible, the beginning bit before Jesus has come, that there was a man called Moses. And even if you're not a regular in church, maybe if you've never even come to church before, you'll almost certainly have heard of Moses, either from the Prince of Egypt movie or, you know, stories at school. Um, and Moses basically challenged Pharaoh to let God's people go um, and be freed from slavery. Pharaoh was stubborn, proud, greedy, and he wouldn't let the people go despite God sending a number of plagues. And the last one we'll probably remember was a very sad plague, the death of all the firstborns in firstborn males in that in that household. But God's people were protected. They killed a lamb, put the blood on their door frame, then the angel of death would pass over. And that's where that festival comes from. So the Jews would have gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate this. Um, imagine Glastonbury the Queen's Jubilee, it would have probably looked something like this, like big crowds of people, hustle and bustle, excitement, celebrating, feasting, singing, dancing, 
um, and Jesus is coming back. And the temple itself was really significant because it was a sign to the Jews of the sacrifices that were being made there to ensure God's forgiveness and mercy and of his fellowship and friendship with them and also the hope for the future. And it wasn't like today, you know, we can go, I could go for a 10 minute walk and I'd probably find two or three churches. But in this time, there was one temple where the presence of God dwelled. So this is really big for the Jews. So that's a little bit of background. And now so we come back to the passage. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he tells his disciples to go and fetch a colt or baby donkey. It's a weird thing to imagine, isn't it? And... Um, you know, can you imagine riding on this guy? Kind <laughs> of uncomfortable, not very majestic, not very, not much stage presence. They probably expected him to be riding in on a stallion. Um, so why did he choose a donkey? It's a strange choice, isn't it? But this was to fulfill a prophecy in the book of Zechariah. This is another book in the Old Testament. And prophecy is like when God tells us about something that's going to happen in the future. And the way I think of this, it's a bit like an advert for a new TV show. So the makers of that show know that show is coming. Uh, they've set things in motion to make that show. And they're giving you an advert so you can look forward to it, get excited about the next season of your favourite show or whatever it is. And this is what's happening in Zechariah. God gives people a glimpse into the coming of the Messiah, the one who's been promised that's going to come and rescue them forever. So all those daily sacrifices made in the temple could come to an end because it was going to be done once and for all. And in Zechariah it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey and it goes on as well to say he's going to proclaim peace to the nations his rule is going to extend from sea to sea he'll free prisoners from the pit it goes on and on so this king jesus that was going to come was a great sign to the jews of their salvation and their rescuer and so that's the people's response to jesus they throw their cloaks onto the donkeys, give Jesus a seat, they throw their cloaks on the ground and they spread the palm down branches. They shouted Hosanna, which is an expression of praise. Um, and they recognised that he had come in the name of God and he was bringing the kingdom of David. Um, so why lay down coats? Why wave palm leaves? What's it all mean? And, and this was basically the people's way of demonstrating Jesus was a king. Um, they, um, you know, if you think about it a bit like a red carpet laid out for celebrities today, but it was more than just like an act of chivalry, like when a man puts a coat down over a puddle, puddle for a woman. I don't think I've ever seen that happen in real life, but it happens in the fairy tales, doesn't it? It was more than that. It was a way of giving honour. It was a way of showing submission to royalty. And we see that as well in another part of the Bible, in 2 Kings, um, where it says, they quickly spread out their cloaks on the bare steps and blew the round horn, shouting, Yehu is king. So this tells us they're giving Jesus a king's welcome. And again, with regards to the palm leaves, so this was again a symbol of Jesus' priesthood or kingship. In Revelation chapter 7, it says, After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, 
from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, which we know that's Jesus. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God, who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Now this is another example of prophecy, but this one hasn't happened yet. This one is, we can get excited about this one coming in the future. But again, it shows us that those palm leaves were a sign of worshipping royalty. So then we move on from that bit of the passage. That's a wonderful bit where everyone's welcoming him in, excited, celebrating him as king. The other part of the passage details his conversation with the religious leaders. And earlier on in that passage, it's very clear that their intent, it says, was to destroy him. So they come to Jesus and they're questioning his authority. And the first batch of people we've looked at seem to understand, don't they, that Jesus is king, they're welcoming him in the right way. And But the leaders seem absolutely intent on discrediting Jesus and challenging his authority. It seems that they're annoyed that they've been upstaged. So imagine now the scene before you, there's a big crash, there's total chaos, no one knows where to go, there's no police officer around, um, and the young man steps out of his car and starts to direct the traffic and clears the route, people follow his instructions, it's all back to normal. Just as he's about to get back in his car and drive away, the police turn up. And instead of getting out of their cars and saying, thank you so much, like you've done our job for us, this is excellent, they're really annoyed. And they, there's a sentiment of, who does he think he is? It's my job. Who gave him the authority to come and clear that traffic jam? And this is a bit like the feeling we get with the religious leaders, isn't it? They are, you know, annoyed. They want to hold on to their traditions, their status, and they are not ready to be trumped by Jesus. Um, And Jesus always displays incredible wisdom, doesn't he, when answering the religious leaders. I don't think I listed that on his CV earlier. But he recognises that actually they don't care. Um, They don't care where his authority is from. They're completely just trying to slip him up and have a reason to get rid of him. And Jesus knows that, so he responds in a way that shows their motives and reveals their heart. Um, They just want to weasel out, in the end, they want to weasel out of even answering. So, you might be here now thinking, well, okay, it's all really interesting, but how does it apply to me personally? And I want to encourage you that this is not just an old bit of text or a message for a people from another time. The Bible, it says, is God's living word. It's, it's there for you and me today, like a double-edged sword can cut through all the things in our lives that it needs to. So I'd encourage you to probe your heart now with those questions we looked at earlier on. Who do you say Jesus is? And do you have him on the throne in your life as the authority? And there's loads more in that bit of Mark 11, so I'd encourage you to read the whole passage in your own time, but we just don't have time to look at it all today. So, those questions. Am I embracing Jesus, the true king, the true saviour, or am I looking for a way to tell myself that I don't need to listen to him and he's got no authority in my life? So what might this look like? So how will I know if I'm embracing Jesus? So some people might have made the mistake that thinking a life submitted to Jesus 
Recognize him as, recognizing him as king means a life lived perfectly. A uh, life with no errors, no sins, no mistakes. And maybe actually you're here today and you're not a Christian. And part of the very reason you're not a Christian is because you automatically think, I can't live that life. I can't be perfect. I can't match up to some of the things that I see in Christians. Um, in reality, a life submitted to Jesus recognises that the reason we need him to be king of our lives is because in our own strength, we can't help but stuff it up and make a mess. Jesus came to offer forgiveness for deliberate and unintentional sins. And a life that's submitted to Jesus' authority does not look like perfect behaviour. It looks like a heart that adores Jesus, that realises his perfection and his glory. And it looks like thankfulness, a realisation that if it wasn't for Jesus, then there wouldn't be any solution to the problem of sin in our lives. And the Bible is clear. I'm not saying we don't make any effort. It says, if you love me, then you will obey my commands. We're not excused from a responsibility to live a holy life, a life that attempts to obey the commands of God. But we recognise that when we fail, which we will, we can rest in the knowledge of Jesus' sacrifice and forgiveness. So when I was a young Christian, in my early years of university, I went through a spell, a season, a time, where I made some very deliberate, some very intentional decision to engage in things that I knew were absolutely wrong. Um, I still went to church. And I hid my sin from all my friends and people that I knew were going to pull me up on it and say, Zoe, no, no, no. Um, And on the outside, I looked like someone who was embracing Jesus as king. On the outside, I looked like that perfect Christian. Um, You know, I still went to church every week, lifted my hands in worship. I kept going to midweek grief. But on the inside, which is what God cares about, on the inside, I'd kicked him out. I'd, I'd said... You can have this bit, but not this bit. Um, you're, uh, this bit, you're not on the throne. This bit, I'm going to take control in. I'd shut my ears, I'd barricaded my heart, and slowly it became more stony and more rotten. And eventually, by the grace of God, I knew that I, had, didn't, I didn't want to be like that. I knew I had to put Jesus back on the throne in every area of my life, not just the ones that I fancied choosing at that time. And it says in Psalm 51, I don't think I did a slide for this, it says, the sacrifice you desire, so God desires, is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. And this is David in conversation with God after being a complete stuffer. He took another man's wife, got her pregnant, and then arranged for her husband to be murdered. Um, Yet David is described as a man after God's own heart, because he had a repentant heart. And yeah, so in this psalm, David's demonstrating something called repentance. And it's more than sorry. It's what we talk to our kids about. We say, it's more than sorry. It's saying, I'm going this way. I'm realising it's wrong, so I'm turning around and now I'm going this way. And actually we talk to our kids about when you're headed in that direction, when you turn around, run. Like, get away. And and that's repentance. Um, It's changing around, doing a 180 and going in the opposite direction. So life with Jesus on the throne looks like not perfection, looks like repentance. 
And the last thing I think it looks like, and probably many, many more, these are just the three I chose, um, is trust. A life of Jesus on the throne is a life where we trust him. Right now, our country is in a bit of a mess, isn't it? And so is the world. I don't think you can escape the mess. Um, we've experienced a pandemic, might have had loved ones die, might still be just recovering from the psychological stress of prolonged isolation. Um, our country is in a huge financial crisis. Um, if you're like me, you've probably spent a significant amount of time recently just trying to figure out how to work your finances. Can we afford this? Can we carry on paying our bills, etc.? The all-important question, when can I turn my heating on and for how long? Um, if you're anything like me, I've always been really stingy with the heating, so there's nothing I can improve on. I've just got to take, you know, what's coming. Um, and if I'm honest, it's been really tempting lots of times to think about cutting back on giving. Um, there's a few small things we do, like picking up some things for the food bank, um, we give to a few different charities and many times I've thought to myself, if I didn't do that, then we could probably still be comfortable. Um, and, you know, that shows that if I was to do that, I'm not trusting Jesus. Um, and um, I'm not minimising the worries that people have. Because the reality is there'll be lots of us who are on the brink of debt, wondering, you know, actually, there is no more. There's no more flex. And there's no extra. Um, and I did not minimising those very real, real worries. But the Bible's got a response for you. And Jesus reminded us in Luke chapter 12, he says, This is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or clothes to wear. <coughs> For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them, and you are far more valuable to him than any birds. And I think the key thing in this passage that spoke to me as an individual is that I and you are far more valuable to God than any birds, and he meets their needs perfectly. He sees you, he sees me, he sees us, knows our needs and we can trust him and of course there are many other ways that we can show trust you know in not worrying constantly about our children but doing our best and trusting God to have a hand in their lives in saying no to a habitual sin and trusting God that only he can fulfill our needs despite how tempting and glamorous it might look or trusting that if he says something that is going to cause, if he says something will cause me harm, that I should stay away from it, even if it looks appealing. The list could go on and on and on, and you'll have your own things that God might speak to you in that. So if look to what it looks like to have Jesus on the throne, I think those things um, are certainly part of it. So what does it look like to have taken him off the throne or to have never put him on there in the first place? And the obvious answer is that you don't believe Jesus is the son of God, you don't feel you need his forgiveness, and you give him very little time. Some of us might be in this boat, but I would suggest that the very fact you're in this building, the very fact you're listening to this talk um, today is because you're not sure, and maybe Jesus is putting his finger on things in your heart. Um, and I just encourage you to ask 
one of us about him or to just ask him, say, Jesus, reveal yourself to me. I want to know you. If you're real, speak to my heart and then be ready to listen to him. And the other way it might look is a bit like those religious leaders. So you're asking Jesus questions, but not because you want his answer, but because you want to prove yourself right and him wrong. And part of my job, we're always taught to ask like open questions. Um, tell me about your pain. Um, do you drink alcohol? Have you had any thoughts of harm lately? We know that when we ask leading questions, it completely changes patient behaviour. Things like, you don't smoke, do you? Um, you're coping fine with your children, though, aren't you? Makes them feel like saying no is the wrong answer. Now, our ways of questioning won't necessarily change Jesus' answer to us, but they will reveal what's in our hearts. It might look like, God, I'm willing to give this money if you really want me to, but then it would mean I'd have to miss out on this. And I know that you really want me um, to be well cared for, so you don't want me to miss out, so I'm, you're fine with it, aren't you? Uh, it might be, God, I know this relationship is wrong, but you want me to be loved. Um, how much harm can it do? It might be, God, I know your word says to forgive, but you must know how much I'm hurting. Surely it can't be that bad for me to seek my own revenge. The list could go on and on and on, and again, you'll have individual things that Jesus might be putting on your heart even now. So it's important that we check our dialogue with God. Are we really submitting to him and keeping him on the throne? Or are we trying to twist and bend things to suit our own plans or twist his arm like phrase says, um, like the religious leaders? So I'm going to end on this. So a life submitted to God doesn't look perfect, but it does look like repentance and trust. Ask yourself and God this week, where do I need to trust you more? Where have I taken you off the throne? Where am I pushing for my own will and not letting you speak? Ask him with an open heart, avoiding trying to twist his answers or to suit our own purposes. I know I can do that so easily. And open up your Bibles this week. Remind yourself of what God says in his word. Um, I'm going to finish by praying for us. Jesus, I thank you so much that those people welcomed you in as king because that's exactly what you are, Jesus. I thank you that you want to be on the throne of our lives and that actually that is the best thing for us, to have you on the throne of our lives. And I pray today for those of us that may have never put you on the throne or may have kicked you off the throne temporarily or may have put you on the throne in some things and not in others. I pray help us, God, to, to see where we've done that. And Jesus, I pray that you would speak to each of our hearts this week, Lord God. Um, and I pray that you would remind us of those things of repentance, trust in you, Lord Jesus. Amen.